Hey, this is Catherine Miller, and you're listening to No One Knows Anything, the BuzzFeed News Politics Podcast. Each week, we talk about everything going on insane in U.S. politics and drill down into a few stories, try to make sense of things. I am not your host. I'm filling in for Kate Nocera, who is on her honeymoon this week. As ever, though, we are joined by Charlie Warzel, a senior tech writer at BuzzFeed News. Hey, Charlie. Hey, how's it going? Oh, that's fine. Uh, I am here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I'm sorry for you know, asking that question. It's, it's proceeding. It's, um, yes. So uh, what, are we, uh, what are we talking about today? Today, uh, we are going to talk about the special election that's uh, about to happen in Georgia and, um, and really what all that means, what all these, um, uh, these special elections across the country mean for the, the state of uh, politics in the early part of Trump's administration. Um, another segment, we are, are we at war with Syria? <laughs> um, what does it mean to be at war in 2017? I, I want to ask as someone who does not know. Who actually, yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Um, and then lastly, uh, what's the point of the White House press briefing? It's pretty much the like the highest rated daytime show on television. And, uh, and, and I, I also want to know more about that. With us to talk about all of this is Alexis Levinson, who covers the United States House of Representatives for BuzzFeed News, and Miriam Elder, who is our world editor at BuzzFeed. And lastly, it's 11 a.m. on Thursday, and I am telling you that because by the time you listen to this, plenty could have happened. Next week, voters in Georgia will be selecting a, their next uh, U.S. congressman, uh, as you may have heard. There's a guy running there named John Ossoff, who's about 30 years old. He's a Democrat. Uh, he is that guy who looks like a 30-year-old Democrat. I've seen him, yes. You've seen him? You've <laughs> yes. seen him on he's Facebook good and Twitter? He's good looking. Yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a good looking guy. That seat was vacated when Tom Price became Health and Human Services Secretary earlier this year. It's a very Republican district. But there's been a lot of talk and a lot of money raised uh, down there in Georgia about whether Ossoff could win that seat either either next week during the special election or or later this summer in a in a runoff. And with us to talk about that is Alexis Levinson, who covers the United States House of Representatives for BuzzFeed News and who was just in Georgia last weekend. Hi, Alexis. Hey. And so basically, let's just start with the key question. Is John Ossoff going to win? I think the verdict's still out. Um, I mean, you talk to people on one day to the next, and they're like, oh, yeah, no, he's totally going to break 50. And I I spend a lot of time covering Republicans, so there's a lot of, oh, shit, he's going to break 50. Or, sorry, I guess I should go back. The way this is working, it's a jungle primary or a jungle. Whoa. Jungle primary. What is that? That sounds very exotic. So they, it's not. It's boring. It's really not. So normally <laughs> normally in elections or in elections we all watch, you put all the Democrats run against each other and then they pick a nominee and all the Republicans run against each other and they pick a nominee. And then those, the Democrat goes off, faces off against the Republican and we call that the election. In Georgia, they've just thrown everyone onto a single ballot and everyone is 18 people. And 11 of them are Republicans and I've sort of lost track of what – there's some independents. There's a few Democrats. Um but they're all going to be on the same ballot. They're all going to split up the vote. And so the question is, can someone break 50%? Because what happens if you break 50 is you win. If nobody gets 50, then there's the top two people advance to a, a real a, a runoff election in June. And, and that's kind of that's, that's the big question mark for Tuesday. Is somebody going to win outright? 
And basically the question is, is Ossoff going to win outright? Because with 11 Republicans, the polling we've all seen, no one's really been able to break like 15%. The question is, Ossoff's in, you know, maybe polling in like the polling in like the 40s is what people seem to think. And the question is, is he polling like... 40% 40% or is he polling 49% well, and maybe he'll do it. And, and what's what's he kind of, what's he like? What's his deal? He's raised a lot of money. He's a 30-year-old documentary filmmaker. Um, he worked in Congressman Hank Johnson's office. He worked on like national security issues. Uh, there have been some questions of just how deeply involved he was in those national security issues. Republicans have said he sort of inflated his record. Um, but he was, he was a Hank Johnson staffer. And now he's 30 years old, and somehow he has managed to raise $8.3 million, which is like, I, I don't know how to put this in context, except to say that like if a Senate candidate running in you know the entire state of California raised $8.3 million in 50 days, we'd all be, you know, like everyone's heads would be exploding. And he's running for a single district in Georgia in like an off-year election, and he's managed to raise more money than like most candidates ever raise. To his credit, he, as we said, is pretty good looking. Uh, I am now describing him as if Dartmouth College came to life as a human. That's he what went it would to Georgetown. Like. I, I still, yeah. Yeah. Or, or if Georgetown came to life <laughs> yeah, yeah. as a human, that's what it would look like. I think it's a Georgetown thing. Yeah. The thing about this 8.2 million, though, is not a lot of it's coming from people who live in Georgia. And that's sort of an interesting thing is like my theory with this, and I, I don't think this is particularly original necessarily, but... You know, after the marches and all this, uh, the you know the women's march, the the protests earlier this year, people kind of get to a mental place where they're like, well, what's next? Like, what what could I actually do? And Asif's raised a ton of money off of small donations, and that kind of becomes this. He's kind of first of all, he's kind of cause celebre of you know podcasts of people writing of of a lot of uh, uh, liberal writers. But also it's kind of like, well, I can I can give $20 to this guy that's running in Georgia and like maybe he'll win. And like that's like an actual thing I can do. And and then you end up with eight point two million dollars. This is a question that I have This sort of it, this brings us to, to what I wanted to know, which is that like, is there too much stacked up on this guy? Because I feel like I, you know, someone I, I would never pay attention to a special a election special in, a, election. in a, a Georgia congressional district. And yet, I, like, I know stuff about this guy from people who are just kind of throwing it in my face on Twitter. And, you know, the, the stuff that happened this week in 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 Kansas, I I feel like so much is being put on these 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 races as like referendums on like where we are post Trump and like what's the strength of you know like the democratic insurgents and are republicans weaker now you know 90 days into the Trump administration or whatever like it, it just feels like there's a lot being put on this and that there's also maybe i don't know we like there's a lot of time still to go in the Trump presidency. I don't know. I, it's each each day feels like it's six years long. So like by the time we get to the actual midterms next year, like who knows what what life will be like. But this particular race is one Democrats are very interested in because it's suburban. Yeah. And so in this sort of, oh, God, what happened in November uh, backlash that Democrats have sort of been working, you know, the angst, they've been working through some angst since November because, like, nothing really went as planned. Yes. And, like, what was what was the plan was white, college-educated, affluent areas or suburban areas that, would have, that were expected yeah. to vote for Hillary Clinton. This is one of those districts that, like, Hillary Clinton or, or a future Hillary Clinton in four years and eight years, 
these are the kinds of districts that like Democrats actually really want to win. Alexis, since you've been on the ground, what's the feeling about all this national attention sort of being heaped onto it? And are people in a specific camp of the, like are, are some people saying, hey, like this isn't this isn't going to determine where we go, you know, in, in the midterms or people jazzed about it or overwhelmed? It kind of depends who you talk to. Like there there really are a lot of people sitting there saying, oh, my God, please stop pretending like this is the be all end all of the entire Democratic Party's existence because we might not actually break 50 and like that shouldn't be a big deal because it's a Republican district and it's, it's you know this is Newt Gingrich's old district for some yeah. context like Romney won it by 20 points yeah like this has been in yeah. Republican hands since 1978 the only thing that suddenly changed is that Donald Trump only won it by a single point it's still a Republican district and I think that's worth worth pointing out it doesn't look like John Ossoff is going to clear 50 percent on Tuesday I mean so Ossoff's be- best bet to clear 50 as I understand it, is Republicans need to just not turn out. Like, if Republicans look at this and say, I don't like any of these candidates, which there are a lot of Republicans who are looking at the field of candidates they have and saying, (laughs) Um, but, you know, it it would really take Republicans being like, don't care, don't want to deal with this, just going to stay home, and Democrats being like, oh, my God, we're so excited the world is, you know, has descended on us and we're, we're psyched about it, and then maybe he breaks 50. But more likely, uh, we're probably looking at a June runoff election. We have plenty to look at next week, though. And thank you, Alexis, for coming on to talk about John Ossoff and the uh, Georgia political scene. Anytime. So the next thing that we wanted to talk about today is Syria and and what the U.S. posture is basically towards Syria and what what it means to be at war in 2017 and, and whether we whether we are at war in Syria. Last week, obviously, uh, President Trump ordered a missile strike on an airfield where a chemical weapons attack had been launched against civilians there. So I was I was in the office and, and kind of saw the progression of this from kind of. Our, we published stories. I kind of knew this was coming, and then, and then it happened um, later in the evening that it, that we had actually bombed uh, this airfield in Syria, which is something we have, we have just not done uh, from a military perspective. But Charlie, you you weren't in the newsroom, right? You were you were you were outside. How did you find out about this again? It was it was an incredibly disorienting experience. I was in uh, I I was away on on vacation and in a place where I, I literally didn't have any service, and I came into a restaurant around uh, 9 p.m. And my, like, there were, opening up Twitter was like, you're opening up Twitter and people are like, well, we're at war now. And and it's just such a jarring thing to, to, to go from not knowing that that was even a possibility, you know, 12 hours ago to this, you know, sort of 10 alarm bell, everyone's setting their hair on fire on Twitter. So, I, I mean, I think the what, I, what I'm what i really curious to hear about, uh, to learn more about right now is, like, how are we at war? Here to discuss that with us is a real expert on, on this kind of thing, uh, Miriam Elder, who's BuzzFeed's world editor. Welcome, Miriam. Hi, thanks for having me. Miriam, I think we should just, like, start with this question that I have, which is, how at war are we? I wish I could give you a simple answer to that question, but like with that's a- fine. Give us a complex <laughs> one. Let's go for it. I mean, anything in Syria is really complex. So it started under the Obama administration. The U.S. has been launching airstrikes against ISIS um, for almost three years now. 
Um, and then at the same time, you have a dictator named Bashar al-Assad, uh, who U.S. policy has been to like oppose him but not really do anything about it. So what really changed last week was this is, was the first time any U.S. administration acted against the regime of Bashar al-Assad. Whether that means like we're more at war or less is hard to say because right now that strike was something that just happened like in a vacuum. It happened in and of itself. Like it's not that that's that's it for now. And and so I, I think maybe what could be helpful for people who don't know necessarily is or, or the way that I'm interpreting what you're saying is that sort of that there is this this long continuum or history or timeline of of, of this. And, and what we're seeing now is just sort of like another really like a complicated moment to put on that timeline. Right. I mean, what's happening is like the Trump administration is grappling with a hell of a lot of issues. And uh, one of them is what to do about Syria, what to do about Russia, what to do about Iran, like all the major foreign policy issues. Many of the major foreign policy issues all come together uh, in Syria. Where, for instance, uh, Bashar al-Assad's regime basically is backed by Russia and Iran. Exactly. And so then at the same time, you have a Trump administration that thought it wanted to get better relations with Russia, but then can it do that when they remain opposed in Syria? And so like the reason like I can't and nobody can give you a clear answer to the question like how at war are we or what really changed after that airstrike is because the administration itself doesn't know. And one of the the real complexities of the last few years has been, I, I think there was a notable moment that sort of underscores a lot of the kind of complications around this. Last year during one of the debates, Hillary Clinton was like, we will never put ground troops in Iraq again, basically. And, and we will ne- we won't put them in Syria. We're not we're not putting ground troops there. Well, ground troops were already there. I mean, not, not ground troops, not, you know, 10,000 people, but we you know, we had uh, the US military has a real presence in Iraq right now. And there are uh, there are a few hundred people sometimes in Syria. Is that right, Miriam? Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a real presence in Iraq. They're fighting alongside these Iraqi soldiers um, who are trying to defeat ISIS. And then as the battle against ISIS shifts from being focused on Iraq to Syria, now you're seeing a ramped up presence in Syria. So I think it was just last month. Um, time is a flat circle, so it's hard to like keep <laughs> keep straight these days. Yeah, but I think but last uh, I think it was last month they deployed a bunch of uh, Marines outside of Raqqa. So like I mean this gets back to the what is war in 2017 question. But like back in the day, you know, you'd have um like a big beach landing or what have you and you know well and also you'd have, you know, Congress would vote on whether we're going to war or not. And what we're having here, and I use this phrase knowing that it's not ideal and will be controversial, but it's more like the Vietnam model where it starts with like some advisors and then there's some more advisors and then there's some more advisors, and that's kind of where we've been um in Syria for the past two, three years. The Syrian civil conflict, civil war, basically, has been going on for more than five years. There's been different kind of iterations. I mean, it it really has created ISIS became a thing because of the Syrian civil war. The refugee migrant crisis in Europe became extremely exacerbated by the Syrian civil war. Our relationship with Russia has been further exacerbated by the Syrian civil war. There's just it, it a lot of things are played out there. And all of those sound like, to me, to be, you know, the, the meaty, big political issues of, of the Trump administration and, and, and in Congress. And I guess, like, how, how is Congress 
reacting to this? I mean, there's like the there's a micro way and a macro way to answer that question. The micro way regarding like the airstrike last week, you had a lot of noise at the time. First of all, it did happen incredibly quickly. So it was normal to like be on vacation and then come back and see this. It all happened in the span of like 48 hours. Um, and at the time, you had a lot of Congress people being like, we need a new authorization for the use of military force. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't do this without involving us, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you've heard pretty much nothing since the actual strike uh, happened. And um, I don't know, Catherine could probably speak more to this than I can, but it seems to me like there is just not much of a desire inside Washington broadly. And this is a carryover from the Obama days, but that there isn't much of a desire to um, like to actually deal with Syria. Very few people actually want to be responsible for a vote on committing forces to Syria to a new intervention. The Iraq war was incredibly, incredibly unpopular and drove a, a lot of a major electoral shift in 2006 when Democrats took control of the House. People remember that people don't want to be on the record voting for something that then later becomes unpopular. And foreign intervention tends to be unpopular. Now, here's the here's the big problem with a lot of this stuff. And, and this is why everything is so confusing. Donald Trump doesn't really have a very clear, this White House does not have a very clear direction on this issue. They just don't. They, it's tough for anyone to know whether Donald Trump thinks we should be in Syria or whether he doesn't think. I mean, he campaigned against that, but now they, we've bombed uh, this airfield. It's tough to know the foreign policy direction of this White House. And normally, you know, this is one of those issues that like Hillary Clinton and Marco Rubio agree more on this issue and Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul agree more on this issue uh, that you know Bernie Rand that kind of liberals libertarians they they're very against inter- foreign intervention Hillary Clinton kind of more of a hawkish democrat and there are a lot of ha- there are uh, you know a lot of hawkish democrats in Washington and you know you have uh, people like Marco Rubio John McCain that are very hawkish republicans and and this airstrike was very popular with people like that and very unpopular with a whole different group of people. So it's all very confusing. And a lot of it comes back to the fact that you just don't know what Donald Trump really plans to do here. Does he need to, like, for the for the public, for Congress, for whoever, does he need to have, like, a Congress? Like, he's always, he's breaking all sorts of norms every day. And is one of them that, that he, basically he doesn't need to have a, a vision for this? I think precisely because... So many other huge issues are wrapped up in it from the refugee crisis to relations with Russia to relations with Iran. You can't like you can't be wishy-washy here. Um, It affects too many other things. Oh, God, it's really it's it's a mind fuck. It is. It really is. Because, you know, in in one sense, you're saying it's sort of like this. What what just happened exists in a vacuum to a degree right now, currently. And then it's all part of this like messy Gordian knot. Yeah, but it's it's also it's a messy Gordian knot that like Obama um, lived with for years and years, and I think will be, you know, will cast a real shadow over his legacy um, in the years to come. Because at the end of the day, the most important thing to remember is um, that hundreds of thousands of people are being killed, are being made homeless, are being driven from their homes, from their country. The scale of suffering in Syria is unimaginable. The fact that it's happening in 2017, I mean, the chemical weapons attack for sure, but even beyond that uh, is insane. So it's a real it's a real failure of the previous U.S. administration. Um, we'll see what the current one does, but it's also like a failure of the international system. It's unbelievable. Thanks, Miriam, for coming on and, and talking with us about this today. Thank you, guys. 
So sort of switching gears here, uh, you know, this week, despite us intervening militarily in Syria and despite sort of all of the uh, geopolitical upheaval, one of the more covered events of the week was a uh, gaffe by White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer during the um, the mostly daily White House briefings um, where he... Uh, in trying to condemn the uh, chemical weapons attack in Syria, ma- made a reference that sort of seemed to, at the time, praise Adolf Hitler for restraint. I, I think when you come to sarin gas, uh, there was no – he was not using the gas on his own people the same way that Ashad is doing. I mean, there was clearly I, – I, I understand your point. Thank you. I, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. There was not – in the in the he brought him into the to um, to the Holocaust Center. I understand that, but I'm saying in the way that Assad used them, where he went into towns, dropped them down to innocent into the middle of towns, it was brought. To, so the use of it, and I appreciate the clarification there. That was not the intent, and was then interpreted as a Holocaust denial. Offended a lot of people. He walked it back. I think like four separate times. Four times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and it really it just you know as things like that that are on camera and uh they tend to do it was it sort of led cable news for like 18 hours straight uh and 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 so what i want to talk about a little bit is using this as a jumping off point to to talk about the white house press briefing which is sort of um the way it's been described as like the highest rated uh daytime tv show it, you know the the new york times tv critic reviewed it as you as you <laughs> as you might a tv I didn't show see that. yeah and 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 it just you know it's really become sort of like this amazing like piece of of popular culture now and 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 yet there's so much history to this and and Catherine, you know a lot about this so i wanted to kind of ask you a little bit about like about the evolution of this and i guess the key thing question is like why does this briefing really matter when it's kind of it seems like it's mostly probably canned statements and rarely making big news it's interesting because the the fact that it's televised is a relatively recent phenomenon uh the press briefing in general i had to look at this part of but like started in, I think the 50s, like during the Eisenhower administration, they started having press briefings. Uh, but during the Clinton administration in the 90s, they finally started televising it. And that really changed the dynamic. Because when you do, you sometimes, uh, sometimes the press secretaries, when they like fly around, like when they fly to Mar-a-Lago, I don't think they've done this yet, but they will at some point, And they do like a gaggle. Mm-hmm. And we're like, and you Great get the word. transcript. Yeah, it's, it's such stupid stuff around all of this. Anyway, so they do a <laughs> gaggle and it's all like, performative stuff but anyway they do a gaggle and and usually when you read those it's like more of a substantive thing it's like an actual exchange of information about like the president and the trip and all that kind of stuff the briefing because it's televised i think sometimes turns into this thing where there are real questions that the white house press secretary is pressed on but then sometimes you get into these questions where it's like well is does it give the wrong impression it it, sean if the president does this and it's like, well, who cares? Like, why, why are we doing this? And then now you've got like, one of the things that came out this week with this was, uh, <laughs> did you see this gif of, uh, Ashley Parker? Yes. Yes. There's oh a, my so gosh. there's a, <laughs> this it's, is it's... the best. You gotta, uh, everybody's gotta find this somehow, but we, basically Ashley part. So the person, the reporter behind the woman who asked the question that ultimately led to this Holocaust answer 
is sitting there listening to Sean Spicer talk about it. And it's this, I mean, it must be a it, 15 second. It is. And it's like, it's the most emotional journey that I've ever seen in gift form. Like it, it starts with on. confusion into like horror. And there's like, you know, a lot of facial contorting. And and if when I first saw it, I was like, I was kind of, I thought, I, I again, I forgot that there are weird cameras that are trained on reporters that and they I thought that it was sort of like oh hamming for the camera sort of playing the incredulous reporter and then I realized that like she hadn't <laughs> she, she didn't know she there. was being she filmed this yeah, is no. like this was earnest actual reaction and I just like oh man yeah there's like two genuine double takes in the thing <laughs> and where she like looks away and then looks back and then her eyebrows kind of like squint and I mean and that's and while that brought me like great joy this week like, what are we doing? Why are we watching a gif of Ashley Parker reacting to Sean Spicer saying something about the Holocaust? Like, yeah. say, saying something about the Holocaust that, like... The, the spectacle of this of this briefing kind of takes the eyes off of the actual news either being made or the actual subjects and sort of puts it on both, like... It puts a lot of it on, on the reporters themselves, whether they want it or or not. And But it also sort of turns it into this, like... I suspect ha- some people do want it. Yes. That's the other... <laughs> but yeah, it, but it does turn it into this sort of... This situation where, you know, it's like, who who can who can sort of... It, it's a bit of a pop culture, like, or, like, zeitgeisty moment. And you, like, can... Who can sort of rise to that? You know, like, like I think last year they asked a question about Harambe to... Obama's press secretary like like they asked a question in that same uh, infamous Spicer briefing about the guy who was dragged off the United flight and it's kind of just like like do we really need to know what the White House thinks about every viral story of the week it can be important for pressing the White House basically on a key issue from you know something that that the White House hasn't commented on and that needs kind of kind of direction from the White House the one thing I will say is I actually like Sean Spicer's approach way better than in during the Obama administration. I used to have to watch them for work and they were so boring because intentionally. <laughs> so what they would do is like somebody would ask something and like an important issue and Jay Carney or Josh Ernest would say, well, I would point you to my counterpart at the Justice Department on this issue. But I would say, and then they would proceed to talk for about three minutes and just sort of filibuster and sort of drone on and on and on until they basically hadn't said anything about the issue. I think that kind of speaks to at least my general impression of 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 this White House now. Like, there is the whole idea of, like, people may not be telling the truth or you know like it, there's there's a lot of chaos but it's also like out of that chaos can come like some you know non-scripted news making moments it feels and- yeah i mean and that's sort of the na- the twisted nature of this whole thing is that the trump administration actually gives way more on the record commentary it's like it's sort of a the 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 public press dream is to have all these people saying things all the time that you can actually quote in real life. Well, I guess we'll just have to continue and watch and see what our friend Sean Spicer does uh, in the coming weeks and months. But uh, I feel I feel like I learned a little bit about the history of this. And thank you for that, Catherine. You're welcome, Charlie. And so lastly, as always, we like to close this podcast with a little bit of time travel to take you back to a simpler time. Um, 
and see what Donald Trump has tweeted on this day some other year. Catherine, I have uh, my first my search yielded, I think, some pretty good results. This is from April 13th, 2012. Uh, This is a Donald Trump tweet. It is at Barack Obama without even a period in front of it or anything. It's just directly to the guy. It is a message to Barack Obama. So at Barack Obama, who wants to raise all our taxes, he only pays 20.5% on a $790,000 salary. Do as I say, not as I do. And then he links to President Barack Obama and Vice President Joe Biden's 2011 tax returns. That's right. So... (laughs) It's like inception levels of absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. The the it's like mind boggling stuff. Uh, so I just you know, I, I, it's hard to know what to say about these other than I just think that I, there is Donald Trump's Twitter archive is just the most amazing like referential document or whatever you want to call it corpus to go back and find him saying the complete opposite thing to what he yeah, said. Yeah, you sort of have, like, happened. the mental image of somebody opening a filing cabinet, just sort of, like, thumbing through, like, a giant sheaf of manila f- folders and being like, oh, yep, here it is. <laughs> exactly. The complete <laughs> opposite opinion only only five or six years earlier. Great. Well, I'm not the normal host, but I had a good time. Thanks for letting me be on, Charlie. I love having a reluctant host. It's fantastic. No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer and Eleanor Kagan. The show is edited by me, Catherine Miller. Production assistance comes from Veronica Doolin. Our music is by Beauty Pill. And you can find us on Twitter at Catherine Miller and C. Warzel. 